Okay, let's start backwards. There are creations. Creations are defined by two fundamental characteristics, that they are distinct from God and they're distinct from each other. Okay. Um, we're, in Hebrew, we would call this their mitzias, their existence, or they translate their entity, right? But they are entities in the sense that they are distinct from God and they're distinct from each other. They are entities to themselves. What does that mean? That every creation has a sense that I am not God and I am not some other creation. That makes sense? Okay. So going back to what we just said yesterday, some of this is going to be reviewed, but I just want to do it from a different angle. We start with the easier stuff, get to the harder stuff, and then set the context. So you have an angel named Michal, and Michal has a very clear sense that he is not God. And he has a very clear sense that he is also not Gavriel, another angel. Okay. Now, what differentiates him from God? And what differentiates him from Gavriel? To himself. Right? Those are those are legitimate questions. Okay. What? Right, there are two different answers. Like one is what differentiates him from yeah. God and what differentiates him from Gavriel. Okay. Um, what differentiates from God is that God God is um, I'm afraid to say this. I'm going to spend a lot of time explaining it, but I'm going to say it anyway. God is an object. There's something called a subject, something called an object. Just make sure we have this clear. This is the origin of those dangerous words, subjective and objective. But a subject and an object, when we are discussing um, being, right? A, a, a being that is a subject has a perspective, has a point of view, is the is the one with the conscious experience, if you will. Okay? So when you are looking at me in that phenomenon, who's the subject? You. Me. Right. You're looking at me. Uh-oh. Right? Now, the object is what, what, what the subjective thing is directed at. So if you're looking at me, then what's the object? So if you're thinking of something, the thing you are thinking about is the object of thought and you are right, the subject who's thinking the thought. Does this make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. Why do we say what subject are we going to uh, Because it, words move around. Okay. So if Malach Mechol has a perspective, right? Malach Mechol has a sense that God is an object. Malchol is aware of God. Okay? But we have to go a little bit deeper than that, okay? Oh, 
Do you know what innuendo is? What? So innuendo is when you're saying things in such a way that you're not really saying them. Okay, and this is very important. It serves many purposes in society. It doesn't really matter what these purposes are, but it serves many purposes in society. Um, what innuendo does is it achieves the following. Let us say I want to communicate something to you. But if it doesn't go as planned, I want to be able to deny that I ever did it. To you. So you won't actually say it, but you'll like... Right, that's what, right. So, right, so I'll use innuendo, right? So the thing is, the thing is, and what this does... Now, it's not like I'm actually fooling you. When I deny that I was doing it, I'm not fooling you. You know that I was doing it, and I know that you know that I was doing it. So there's an interesting thing. In other words, there's a difference between innuendo and lying. Innu- no. Right. So, so, so it's weird because if I'm lying to you, so I'm lying to you, but no, I, I wanted to convey a certain message. But if it doesn't go as planned, then I can always pretend that I wasn't trying to convey that message. Now, I know I was trying to convey that message. You know I was trying to convey that message. I know that you know that I was trying to convey that message. You know that I know that you know. Like, like so what's, what do we gain by using innuendo? Okay. And what we gain by using innuendo is that we don't create this, what's called the kind of a shared space. In other words, there's, we, we're, our, our knowing what's happening is each happening privately. It's not happening together. There isn't a kind of a shared subjectivity. Okay, whereas if you say things kind of explicitly, clearly, it's not just that knowledge is being transferred one versus the other, that we both have similar perspectives. It's that there's a kind of fusing of our experience, a sense of togetherness in that awareness is, is achieved. And sometimes we don't want that to happen. Okay, does that make sense? Okay. And there could be good reasons for it, could be bad reasons for it. Okay, now... Um, If two people have that kind of shared subjectivity, in some sense, to some degree, what's happening to their entity, to their existence, their metzias in the Hebrew word, it's dissolving, at least between them, right? And the, the, the corollary to that is it's forming a unity. Okay, so the technical terms for this one in Hebrew would be bitl b'metzias, the negating of their existence. That doesn't mean you like cease to be. What it means is that your sense and their sense start fusing together into kind of a shared sense, right? And if you think about it, right, we can kind of measure the closeness that we have to people, at least in one parameter, by the degree to which that happens, right? And very often when we love somebody, we want more of that, not necessarily more in quantity, although that as well, but also more in terms of quality, more of that, sh- that, that shared subjectivity to be deeper, to, to the, the, the boundaries between our perspectives um, melt away even more. Okay, now, if you take that to its logical conclusion, what would eventually happen? There'd be total fusing, right? And it'd be essence just one, one kind of sense of being left over, right? Okay. As much as Malach Michal is aware of God, does Malach Michal ever enter into that kind of shared subjectivity with God? Is Malach Michal ever able to really perceive things from God's perspective and kind of have shared the no? And so he always remains a distinct entity from God. Right? God always remains the object 
even as much as he's aware of God, even as much as he, and I don't mean to objectify in that, that, that crass sense. He can understand what God wants and what God desires, but as much as he understands what God wants and God desires, it never enters that space which is kind of that shared quality. But shared space is not specifically the, like, it's not specifically taking on to some, someone else's perspective. Meaning, like, if you're in the, in, the, in the shared space with a person, it's not necessary that, necessarily that you can see from their perspective. Meaning, like, it's a, it's a different thing. It's like a no, it, 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 was a, it is, but because people are complex and multi-layered and multifaceted, it's happening to a degree. And but with Hashem, it's like always, it's like, you know, so, so, so with, with Malach Michal, it doesn't happen at all. Yeah. At all, right? So even when God communicates with Malchachol or Malchachol communicates with God, there's, it's, there, there's, a, there's, there's the, the kind of alienness of God, the remoteness of God never gets overcome, okay? Right? And so as much, right, and in fact, what would happen to Malach Michal if he would experience even the tiniest amount of kind of a shared subjective perspective with God is what would happen? He would cease to be what he is. Okay, the way our sages put this is that if, if God were to extend his pinky finger amongst the angels, they would be consumed. Okay. What was the word again? His, if God were to extend no, his no. pinky. <laughs> And you end up right. So, okay. So, the, right. I was using that to kind of just as a as a way to get a sense of what I mean by that shared. Subject. It's hard to articulate kind of that shared mutual subjectivity. Okay. So the Mach Michal can direct things towards God. He can do things on God's behalf, but that's the extent of it. In fact, what does the word Malach mean? And don't say angel. It means a messenger, right? So either he brings things to God or he does things for God. So there's an awareness of God and a devotion to God, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that's it. Right? That, that, that barrier cannot be traversed. That, that distance cannot be crossed. Okay? In addition, Malach Michal is distinct from Malach Gavriel. Why is that? Malach Michal is also a distinct entity from Malach Gavriel. Yeah. What? Before we get to the mission. Because he's still an object. Well, so we're going we're gonna, to... Well, two things. Number one, when different one. They have different perspectives. Yeah. So even though... Even though by the they have something in common, which is that their perspective is always God-centered. In other words, it's there's a way they perceive God and how they do things on God's behalf. But with Malach Michal, it always goes through the lens of kindness and love. And with Malach Gavril, it always goes through the, sen- through the sense of um, in, um, justice and propriety and integrity, things like that. Okay, so they're distinct, right? They have, they have distinct perspectives, right? So even if we're both looking at the same thing, say the clock, right? My perspective on the clock is different than yours because we're, we're, diff- we're from different positions, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, that's physically. But, and, 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 and again, that itself 
that itself is not is not sufficient. Because if Malch Mechol and Malch Gavril could enter a shared space with each other, then what would happen vis-a-vis each other? Would they be distinct entities from each other anymore? Yeah. To the degree to which they've entered a shared space. Right? So I'm, I'm presenting this as it's either it is or it isn't, but think of it gradually. Think of like the idealized version of an old married couple. Right? There's a tremendous amount of fusion of their, of their being that has taken place, Right? However, that happens, right? Whereas as much as you might love your spouse, you know, that when you get married, like there's, you're not really that unified because there's a, there's a matter of not, you, way you see things, the way they see things are going to be very, very different. And you have to do a lot of trying to communicate and create that kind of shared subjectivity and it's hard. Okay. But human beings are capable of doing that, right? Is Malach Michal in any way capable of having that kind of relationship with Malach Gavriel or vice versa? Mm-hmm. No. So they really are distinct entities and defined as such. Okay? No matter, right? So, so, so Malach Michal relates to God. God is the object of his awareness and he has a sense that God should be loved, right? And God's, God is loving, right? And everything he does comes from a pursuit of that and a devotion to that, right? But he can never enter that kind of shared space with God to really see things from God's perspective. Moreover, when he encounters Malach Gavril, even though, again, Malach Gavril is also, it's all God-centric. It's all, you know, towards God and on God's behalf. They cannot seem to communicate with each other in any real way. They can't actually kind of create a kind of sense of mutuality, a kind of sharedness, because he can't... He, right, God is not... Right, it just doesn't, it doesn't register. It's, it's outside of his narrow perspective that, that, that God should be harsh or God should be judgmental. There's an interesting medrash to this effect. It doesn't use the terms mach machol, mach gavril, but God wanted to make, create human beings. And he asked the angels. Why he asked the angels... Doesn't matter right now. And he asked um, two sets of angels. He asked the angel of kindness. And the angel of kindness says, of course, create people because they do kindness. People are benevolent, which we are. Then he asked the angel of truth. He says, should I create people? He said, absolutely not. People are full of falsehood. Then create ask the angel of um, justice should should create people says yeah people do you know people do pursue justice should I create they ask the angel of peace should I create people says no people are always in conflict with each other and so each angel is only able to appreciate things from their perspective now what happens is God's like oh this is not good because it's the tide vote right so what does God do he throws truth out of heaven and now it's two to one. <laughs> Which is a discussion for another time. But the point is, like, he doesn't try and, like, have discussions with them, right? Try to bring them on board. Because that ability to shift for sex is to adopt another perspective. What? No, it's a medrash. It's like the Talmudic sages, yeah. Is it from a specific pasuk that it's written? Yeah, yeah, it's from based on the pasuk and Tehillim. Um, Tell you which pasuk it is in a second. I remember half the pasuk. I don't remember the whole pasuk.
Tehillim chapter 85, Pasuk 11. Chesed and Emes met, Tzedek and Shalom kissed. That's what it is? That's, it's the Medrash on that Pasuk. Um, is there a full Tehillim here? It's actually a Right, and then the Medrash continues. Emes ma'aretz titzmach. Emes rises up from the earth. And the question is, well, how did Emes get to the earth? Because Hashem did what? Kicked him out. Created man. Said, okay, now he can come back. I don't know if the Medrash continues on that, but yeah. The, so the, um, gazes. But anyway, so yeah, the Medrash plays on the fact that Medrash is a whole beautiful art that unfortunately people don't learn. But anyway. Um, okay. So now that requires. If, now, so, if, so that, that, that's what we mean when we say that they are. Um, a created entity, okay? So we have a good sense of what we mean by created entity. Again, notice I'm not talking about physical world and I'm not talking about evil or I'm not talking about Nazi, not, I'm just talking about that fact, right? That kind of being an ent- subjective entity in your own right where you always remain distinct from God, you always remain distinct from other entities, okay? Well, if they're being created by the word of God, right? That means that Malach Michal, right, the angel Michal, needs to be, needs to receive those words in a way that they are distinct from the words that are creating Malach Gavriel, right, because they're distinct beings, and also in a way that those words are somehow, as, as our translator put it, issuing from, forth from God and reaching him as a distinct being, right? So, in the, in the experience of Malach Michal, he is getting divine words that are containing a particular truth of God, a particular spiritual energy of God that's unique to him, that's different than what Gavriel is getting. And this spiritual energy is coming out of God to Michal in the same way that actual speech issues forth from the speaker and enters the, the listener. So that means to Malach Michal, where is God? Somewhere else. In some, right, some, some space beyond him, right? To Malach Michal, God is over there. Good? Now. Does what? that mean that Hashem says a different sentence to keep each one of us alive? It, it's complicated. So now we have now we have the reverse though. Let's let's talk about God's perspective. Well, God's perspective is no place devoid of him, right? Okay. What about the perspective of the word? Because we spoke in a previous class, right? The word has its own perspective, right? Well, what's the perspective of the word? That it's unified with how unified with God is it? We have a precise analogy. That it's doesn't even what would the analogy be? The analogy be. So the, dev- the word of God is as unified with God as what is with what? Oh, the, the thought 
right. Before it was done, right. The right, the right, the the language of thought prior to it being. Th- I don't even think thunk's not right. Right, right. Like if I say the word cake, go all the way back to the raw desire for cake. Whatever becomes the 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 English word cake in my mind, which I said prior to that, when it's in the raw experience, right. So it's it's literally fused and indistinguishable, right. Right. And it's only when you. Um, lessen and remove the, the, um, the raw emotional experience that first the, the words actually become an ent- have some sense of being an entity themselves, um, a distinct thing, first in thought, and then eventually can be issued forth out to others through speech. So to the words of God, let's go back. So to the words of God, the words of God, their perspective is, that they are how uniform, so therefore their perspective on themselves and on the things they're creating would be completely connected with God. With God. So again, from, so, now, so, what you, so, so what you'd have to do is like this. So, so to God, is there anything outside of him? No. So is there any such thing as a distinct entity from God? There's not. There's not. Do the words share God's perspective? Yes. Absolutely. 100%. So to the words? There is nothing outside of God. Okay. Which means, objectively speaking, if the words are what's creating Malch Mechol, does Malch Mechol really exist? Not outside of God. Does he, does, does he have that entity, that, that notion, like that whole... That, okay. On the other hand, to Malch Mechol, what did we say? That his sense of things is that he's a distinct entity, right? God is somewhere beyond him, and the word is issuing forth, and it's a distinct word that creates him as opposed to this other Malach, right? So, Malach... Michal or any other created entity's perspective on the divine word that creates them and the divine word's perspective on itself are not in any way in alignment. Okay? And now the question is, okay, well, how does that happen? Is there any logical explanation for it or is it just because that's what Hashem decided? I'm not going to answer that question right now. Okay. Now I want to explain to you. To, to, so I want to explain to you what the what the question is. It is perfectly legitimate for something in one context to be seen one way, in another context to be seen and not right. But that's not what's really happening, right? It's not that. The divine word within God is in one is in one way, and outside of God is another way. Because what we're saying is that the divine word isn't outside, isn't outside of God, but is perceived to be outside of God by the creation it's creating. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's a way in which the fact that everything is within God, that truth is being blocked without it really being blocked. It's being concealed, but in some sense it's not being concealed at all. And that's what the end of this this chapter is going to go into. So we are at the, yeah. Actually, let's go read a bit, let's go back a little bit. Um, The bottom of the left-hand paragraph, hence. So this just describes what we just, 
we just talked about. Hence, it seems to them, them being the created entities, as if the light and life force of the omnipresent blessed be he, which is clothed in them, were something apart from his blessed self and all issues forth from him, just as the speech of a human being issues forth from his soul. Okay, now again, that, they're clearly very God-centric because their whole sense of being is wrapped around that divine word that issues forth from God that brings them into being, right? Yet, in regard to the Holy One, blessed be he, no concealment, or what is this word? Delitiscant, let's see. Hides or obscures anything from him to whom darkness is like light as it is written, yea, the darkness obscureth not from thee. Okay. So what is it saying is that what's blocking the truth from the created entity doesn't block it from God. Then he has an explanation why. But first, before we do the why, we have to know the what. What does it mean that it blocks it from the created entity, doesn't block it from God? It's like a one-way mirror. It's not like a one-way mirror. It's not like that. It's not like that. And I want, at this point, what I, what I want to do is before I explain the what, I want to put this back into context. Why do I care whether it obscures for God or doesn't obscure for God? And the reason I care is because it's always explaining how God remains alone. Right? Remember, that was the entire way we got into this? Okay. So now let's put that in perspective, and then we'll try to understand the what. If I have a one-way window, as you put it, right? I can see through the window, you can't see through the window, right? That's already assuming there's two. I realize that they're assuming there's two. That means there is something which is serving as a barrier and I have some way either due to my own abilities or the way the barrier is structured to circumvent the obstacle of the barrier, right? That's what that means, right? I mean, the same idea of like, take a different way of putting it, right? Like, let's say I'm like a superhero and I have x-ray vision and you don't, okay? It's, it's the same him, issue. Wait, 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 wait. But what that would, I wanted to spell out the problem first. But then that would mean is that there's, I would have to acknowledge that in some objective sense, I'm not alone. There's the, there's the barrier. There's the other side. I'm just able to like, you know, see past it. Actually, you know what, too? It's like by having a barrier, you're saying that there's another creation that is a barrier and then you end up with the same problem. That's what I was going to go to next. Right? The barrier, right? So there's a barrier, can we pass it? So, so whoever's on the other side of the barrier, there's somebody to the barrier. But so I, I realize that's happening to them and it's not happening to me because I can circumvent it. But the thing is, there's the it of the barrier itself, right? You know, I'm not really negating that there's something else at all. I'm just saying that like, I have some way of overcoming or circumventing that problem. Okay, in other words like this, we want to have a distinction very clear in our heads between something not being the case versus some way of 
dealing with that problem. Okay, so there's a difference, like say, for instance, between being healthy and having medical treatment. What's the difference? In both cases, right, medical treatment is supposed to make you healthy, right? But why do you need the medical treatment? Because you're not healthy, right? A healthy person doesn't need the medical treatment because the illness isn't there. It's not an issue, right? Okay, let me you go back to something we discussed earlier. Does God have eyes? Yes. No, he doesn't. Not like eyes. <laughs> no, because what does it mean to have eyes? No, okay, that, that obviously he doesn't. There's something outside of yourself that you have to perceive. Sorry. What are eyes? What are eyes? I mean, our eyes are made of flesh, but what are eyes? The things that allow us to see. Okay, but why do I care about picking up photons? To they allow me to see. Information that's outside of yourself. That's right. Is there any information outside of God that God needs to become aware of? No, not really. So then the whole idea of eyes is irrelevant, mm-hmm. right? You see, you see that that's different. There's two. Like I mentioned this in the previous class when we spoke about this. But there's a very big difference saying God has eyes; they're just not physical. Versus God doesn't have eyes because the whole idea of eyes is irrelevant to God. If there's no knowledge beyond God that He would ever need to become aware of, then He doesn't need knowledge receptors. Be the eyes, no right? There's no if there's no illness, you don't need medicine, right? Does God have reason? Think about this. Reason? reason. You know, we, we, we're rational beings. We no. possess reason. Animals don't. Does God possess reason? No. We can't say He doesn't need yeah. reason with anything. That's right. The, the truth of the answer is like, like, reason affords us all sorts of benefits. Does God need reason? No. Right. Well, so what if he doesn't need it? Um, let me put it like this. Yeah. No, 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 no. Even I was going to that would be the next step. Wait. If you don't be, if you're not rational, what happens? You don't know the truth, and you don't func- and you do not function constructively. That's the basic. That's, like that's what happens if you're not rational, right? Hence, animals, right? Once you take them out of out of whatever their instincts, they cannot function. Co- they cannot function, right? We can recreate things to make to make things work for us, even if there's not natural. And animals don't know any truths, okay? Does God, are there truths that God needs to become aware of and come to possess that he starts off lacking? There's some truth beyond God? No, so that's out. Is it possible for God to function in the improper manner? No. No. So then, does he need reason? No. So I, when I say that he's rational, what I mean to say he doesn't suffer from a lack of reason. When I say he has eyes, what I mean to say he doesn't suffer from a lack of eyes. Okay. Then you go, and this is actually a fundamental principle in Judaism. Does God have the power? Yeah. Mm-mm. What, what, power power? Is limiting him? what does it mean to have a power? It means there's me, and I have something that enables me to do something else, which means me on my own. This gets a little bit tricky. Now, to say that God is actually a fundamental principle of Judaism is that God does not possess powers because that would imply that the being of God is powerless and therefore needs this other thing, right? Do you see the difference? Like, like, there's a very big difference in saying this is a non-issue versus it's an issue and we solved it. If I say there's a barrier and God has some trick that he can use to get past the problem of the barrier, there's still a barrier, right? And so he's not alone because there's a barrier and whatever reality the barrier generates is also, right? And so if we want God to remain alone to the exact same degree that he was before the world was created, after it was created, introducing a barrier of any kind 
regardless of God having special magic tricks that allow him to get past the barrier, is doesn't God. solve anything. So we don't say Hashem as like Esar Kaicha. It's like powers we don't use by God. Well, in Kabbalah we do, which is why Kabbalah is tricky. So and saying he is this, he is that, is also tricky. Or is yeah, that's a, yeah, yeah. Maybe you can add, if you want it, if, if you want, we can talk about more questions and answers. But for this class, we're done with the time. Okay, so I cannot say that God actually created a screen or a curtain or a barrier, and that barrier hides the truth that there's nothing other than God, and therefore the created entities experience themselves as entities, and the Word of God being distinct and issuing forth from God and reaching. That can't be, even if God can, so to speak, see past it all. Because what you're saying is that is objectively happening. There are other things that are being created. It's just that God is able to like, I don't know. Right. He's not the same. He's like seeing, he's like doing something and seeing past what he's doing. It doesn't solve the problem of aloneness. If our issue were ignorance, this would solve the problem. If our issue is, okay, if you put up a wall and God can't see what's on the other side, and now he's ignorant of something. So you say, okay, well, no, no, God can still know what's on the other side because he's a special God, whatever. That wouldn't be a problem. Because again, the issue is not God, the issue is not God's ability to see what's on the other side of the blockage. The idea is like, is there any reality to the blockage? If there's reality to the blockage in any way, then that means there is, he's not there is a level of reality, there is a space in which the entity of the angels exists, the word of God has, at least from that perspective, left God and entered them. And, in, and as much as that is real, and nothing God does is fake, God is not alone. Is there some higher perspective where he can see past that and he's still real? Okay, so previously he was alone from all perspectives and now he's only alone from some perspectives. He's not alone to the same degree. So I need to have a barrier which is not a barrier, a blockage which is not a blockage. I can't just simply say that God can see past it. Yeah. Now I'm more confused. <laughs> this happens. <laughs> because, like, if God is, is everywhere, then technically he's in our perspective. So from God's perspective through our perspective, he wouldn't see a separateness. You know what I'm saying? That's what we want to get to. That's exactly what we want to get to. Is that when God looks at our perspective... Not from the outside, but literally from the... He's, right. So there's some kind of illusion with our perspective that we think is our perspective. Ah, okay. So here's the problem. So, so, so I want to... Just, on the one hand, so I, I want to create the, 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 the two sides of the, uh, of the things, of the issue. We can't say there's an actual barrier because if there's an actual barrier, we haven't solved the aloneness problem. But we can't say there's an illusion of a barrier. There's an illusion of a blockage. There's an illusion of something, of a curtain, of a concealment, of a whatever... Because that would mean the entire creation is illusory. Now, why can't I say the creation is illusory? Like, let it be illusory. What's the problem? Because there's no Judaism. Before, like, why are we discussing God's aloneness? Oh, because everything we do mitzvah It's all to explain the importance of doing mitzvahs. Right? In other words, this is very important. The ground upon every idea that chassidus rests is the importance of Judaism. To claim that Hasidus teaches that reality, God's created world, is illusory is to mean that the Judaism we're doing is not, not important. Now, were there Jewish theologians and mystics who did take that approach? Yeah. 
There were. No, Jewish. No, chas v'shalom. No, I'm saying like that's the source of Christianity. It's not the source of Christianity. No, it's not the source of Christianity. Wasn't that what Christians believe now? No, no. It doesn't matter what Christians believe. There was, for instance, a very famous rabbi named Reb Chaim Volashen, and he wrote a, a work which is kind of like the, 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 the contra to Tanya. It's like, why you shouldn't be a chassid? <laughs> it, was printed at, it was written in the same time, in the same era. Um, and he adopts a lot of the, the same kind of theological positions. But one thing he says about this idea that God is alone, there's only God, he says that's true from God's perspective, and in some sense ultimately true, but you shouldn't think too much about it, because if you think too much about it, the conclusion you come to is that the world is illusory, and then what will happen? Will you think it's important to do Torah and mitzvahs? No. Okay, but how did this discussion start? It's really significant to do all the mitzvahs because all the mitzvahs are a statement of the unity of God. Well, nowhere in that discussion can you ever have the conclusion that the reality is illusory, right? Because at the end of the day, it's all about the importance of doing things one way and not doing things the other way. So I can't conclude that this whole thing is illusory and I can't have like an actual barrier. So I've got a problem, right? In other words, if I, I have this thing, which on the one hand to the creations, right? Again, I'm talking about the angels. It really does, not, not in a, in a loose way, it really does block from them the truth that God is everywhere. There's nothing outside of God. And at the same time, there's nothing blocking the truth. <laughs> so how do, how do I make sense of that? But th- that's, what, that's what kind of a, a blockage you need. A blockage which is, which is actually blocking without blocking. That's actually obscuring without obscuring. And is it also dangerous to say that Hashem didn't, he chose to remove himself from our own perspectives? Or is that allowed? Uh, it because depends. Hashem isn't everywhere. It depends what you mean. Like that could mean so many different things. It's a matter of debate. I want to stick to what we have here. So, now, he has here in, in our translation one, two, three, four, five, six, seven lines of text, which is like half a column. Right? It's, 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 and it's column text, right? So it's not that much text, right? Now, um, If you look in footnote 11, he sends you to the second section of Tanya, chapter six. There's chapter six is like an entire chapter of the second section of Tanya is an entire chapter dealing with what he has here in these few lines. The topic there is actually developed in entire Hasidic discourses. It is quite involved, okay? I, what I'm going to try and do is explain the idea, okay? And I want to, what I would like to do is to get make sure we have the core idea clear. Because again, what do we need? We need something which actually, objectively blocks with at the same time and not blocking at all. Not, it's blocking one thing and not blocking another thing. It's, it is both blocking and not blocking the same thing. It is both is and is not simultaneously. <laughs> right? And not because God has special magic tricks to get past the problem, right? Because that, that wouldn't really solve the issue we're dealing with. So there is a halacha. We'll start with halacha because if you want to understand anything in Judaism, you really need to ground it in halacha. Um, 
Jewish men are not allowed to mention the name of God without their head covered in the context of um, making a blessing, um, in the context of prayer, in the context of um, Torah. So if you are studying Torah, you are praying, you're making a blessing, saying the name of God, you need to have your head covered if you're a man. There are many pious Jewish women throughout history um, who had a similar thing with women. Um, when I say pious Jewish women, I don't mean they wore yarmulkes. What do I mean? No. That's already a married issue. Yeah, they wear shawls. Yeah, they wear shawls. They make sure they wear shawls. And you still see this. Like my bubby, when she lit Shabbos candles, and she wasn't necessarily, she wasn't like, she was very traditional, but she wasn't religious. But like, of course you can't light Shabbos candles to put on a shawl like you. And there would be, and you know, there was, so it was a, like, like even an unmarried woman, some unmarried woman, they would have like a, a handkerchief and a kerchief and whatever. Um, I, I, I'm mentioning it. But I'm also interested to tell you the, the following thing. There's a principle in Judaism that you shouldn't do, you shouldn't, you shouldn't do things that are not the normal custom of the community. These things were only practiced in those communities where it was common for even unmarried women to go around with a kerchief or a shawl over their head. And once they were doing that, they were careful not to make a blessing with their head uncovered. If the normal norm in the Orthodox community in a particular place is that unmarried women don't cover their head at all, then you're just like being like holier than thou arrogant, which is sinful to start covering your head. Um, so not saying you should take that on, but for men, it's an actual obligation. Okay. So here's the question. What if a yarmulke goes away and I don't have my yarmulke? Can I put my hand on my head and make a blessing? That's what moms do to their kids? No. no. I am but not. That is not okay. It's better, it's better not. But no, no, it's, no, it just doesn't work. Not at all. But if my son... It makes you sensitive to it, though. doesn't matter. It's still forbidden. If my... Like, if, in, this, in this state, I'm not allowed to make a blessing. But for kids, like, it's yeah. doesn't matter. Kids, not kids. doesn't matter. But if it's someone else's hand, then it's fine. No, but that's what I said. The, I said the, my hand. Oh, okay. You can't use your own hand. You can use someone else's hand. That makes sense because your hand is part of you. Your hand is part of you. If the whole point is that there's someone above you, you cannot be the one above you, right? Right? It's like, uh, we, we do we have a class where I spoke about this idea of worship? You did a little bit. Uh, I spoke, I, I think what came up in, in a, I, many, many, a long time ago, I have a class on, on, um, on the 30 principles. Right. I know I talked about it there, but I think I have a question and answer class recently. I spoke about the idea of worship and how like, mm-hmm. like real worship is someone above you. And so like a secular society doesn't really worship the self. It's like there's no worship at all. Mm-hmm. Right? If I, I, I worship myself, that's not worshiping. Worshiping is like this. There's, is there something higher than me, something above me? Like there's a level, there's a sense of subordination, um, surrender, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So if the yarmulke is meant to symbolize that, inculcate that, whatever, something in that realm, right? Putting my own hand on my head is utterly meaningless. Now, separate point, um, according to many Allah authorities, once Jewish men wear a head covering all the time, it becomes a matter of tzniyas, a matter of modesty. And for that, you could use your hand. So that's why you'll see, like, if the yarmulke blows off, many people will just put their hand on their head even though it doesn't serve the primary purpose of the yarmulke, but at least they're not being immodest by having their head uncovered. Because okay. um, once, because once, that, that's already a whole nother discussion. So it's technically allowed, and it's not something you usually do to just 
they're saying blessings and learning terror. What? It's technically allowed according to Allah for a guy to decide. It's not what he normally does. No, no, no. These the songs don't work on the individual level. Oh, it's on the community level. Yeah. Like, if, if it's the Right. Of, Ashkenazi Jews wear yarmulkes. Therefore, it's not sneez for an Ashkenazi Jew to walk around without a yarmulke. Sephardic Jews, it really depends. Like, as far as I know, it is not the common practice amongst Syrian Jews, even the Orthodox ones, to wear yarmulkes. I mean, maybe is now, like, but it wasn't. All it, day? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you go back, even like, you know, if you go back to Syria, to Lebanon, the Jewish communities there, like, the average person who wasn't a rabbinic figure did not wear a yarmulke during the day. It wasn't. In the Talmud, it's mentioned as a custom of the pious. It eventually became the norm in many, many communities throughout all of Ashkenazi Jewry. Um, but as far as I know, in Sephardic Jewry, it didn't catch on. You know, once you know, we start mixing the model, world, things get a little bit different. Okay. Um, so you can't put your own hand on your head because it's yours. <laughs> it's you. Okay. So. Am I hiding? No. You are. You're hiding your face. No, could be. Could be not. Right. It's, it's the thing. Like, I mean, I am not hiding. But you can't see me. No, you can't see us. That's also true, but that's not the point that I'm interested in right now. You can't see me. Now, what do you mean you can't see me? Of course you can see me. We can't see your face. Okay. But I said you can't see me. Can't Why is me my face? Why is me my face? It is. What does it mean to see a person? You don't know who it is if you can't see them. To see a person, to see a person, to see a person is, you, first off, you, you're not seeing like a physical object, you're seeing them as a person. Now, the person is physically there, right? Like dead people you can't see, unless you're normal, unless you're abnormal, right? You're, you're abnormal, you can see dead people, right? You can't see dead people because they're not here, right? You have to be here physically. But when I see the person, right? I see the person in the part where that fact that they are a person is manifest. And that's not manifest. In the rest of the body, it's manifest in the face, which is why, for instance, when we're communicating with each other, how do we orient our bodies? We face each other, right? And if I were to turn my back on you, right, that would clearly indicate that I do not seek to relate to you as a person, right? So in kind of some substantive way, when I put my hands over my face, you can't see me because the me that I am is being obscured from you. But at the same time, what's doing the obscuring? You. I am obscuring myself. So, so if I'm obscuring myself, in some sense, in some sense I'm obscured, but in some sense, You're really not. I'm really not. We're going to talk much, he mentions the idea of the face here a little bit. We're going to talk much more about the face in chapter 22. Okay, much, much more about it in chapter 22. So, okay, so the principle here is that when something hides itself, it is both hidden and not hidden at the same time. In other words, like this, if I hide behind a veil, I'm hidden. Even if I can see through the veil, because the veil is something other that is preventing me from being seen. If I disappear... I'm just absent. But if I stay present and the thing that prevents me from being seen is me, I'm the one preventing myself from being seen. So the thing that's blocking your vision is also me. So I do see you. So you, right. You see me, but wait, 
but you don't see me. And, and at this point, when you start trying to find out the right perfect wording, you just get frustrated. It's much more about capturing the idea. So I'm going to give you another analogy. Does Hasidus talk about human relationships or does Hasidus talk about um, God and the soul? Both. Wrong. Human relationships. Wrong. God and the soul. God and the soul. <laughs> Are you good? God Process of elimination. It could have been not, neither, right? But that would have been... God, Hasidus talks about God and the soul. That's all it talks about. But a relationship without... Each other is, I mean, is God. It's really God because yeah, we're God. really God. Like, no, 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 like, no, 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 So, have you ever learned Chassidus? Yeah. Has anyone ever taught you Chassidus? But it's always in human to human. Do they use a lot of human relationship analogies to help you understand things? Yes. In fact, if you walk into a Chassidus class and someone doesn't necessarily tell you, you could spend years in Chassidus and think that Chassidus is like, you know, Jewish relationship advice. In fact, some people might actually just start talking and giving cold class on Jewish relationship advice as if that's what Chassidus is. is but Chassidus is not that. Chassidus is talking about God and the soul. And the soul. So why talking about human relationships? It's the only thing we can do. Right. So it's the way of communicating it. Right? Right. It's an analogy. Okay. Now, if you are if you are the recipient of Hasidus, the analogy and the actual Hasidus are to your mind two very different things. So you can sit in the whole class and discuss like, you know, how does a teacher teach a student or how does a marriage work or what does it mean to engage in a, a state of mutual subjectivity or what is love, right? We have a whole class just about that. And then you have to do like a whole mental shift now shift to thinking about the soul and God and what does that mean in terms of like actual Judaism, right? It's like a huge mental shift because they are two different subject matters, right? That makes sense? To the Rebbe's who brought these teachings into the world? Were those two different subject matters? No. Mm-mm. No. In other words, when they were talking, when they were, when they were, when they were talking about it, it wasn't like they were talking about human relationships, so that we can then use that to understand something else. Is that because that really is what it is? Right. They saw human relationships as an embodiment of these truths, and so t- when you are the recipient. The analogy is one subject and you have to do like an actual, you have to do an actual mental um, shift, which I'll talk about in a second, but that shift has actually a few elements to it, to move from the analogy to the real subject matter of Hasidus. But if you are the originator of Hasidus, right? If you're not, in the sense of in the human being, right? You're the person who these ideas first come into reality in your mind. And these analogies are just because you see these phenomena of teachers and students and marriage and love and, 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 and devotion and, 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 and service and all these types of things as embodiments of the truth. And so you're not, you're just talking about it on the, le- the level of the student, but you're not, you're not hiding anything. You didn't shift subject matters. Okay. 
And we're going to give an analogy to the analogy. When you teach little children things, you can teach little children things, but you have to teach it on their terms. So if I want to talk about Shabbos, I have to talk about Shabbos practically. I can't talk about Shabbos conceptually to my three-year-old. Right? But I can talk about Shabbos practically. But to my mind, is the practical dimension of Shabbos something that is other than the conceptual thing of Shabbos? Or is the practical the embodiment of the conceptual? Conceptual, right, is what the practical really is. It's not like two different things. And in other words, when you're, when you're thinking about something as, as, a, as, a, as a more mature mind, the practical ramifications of the idea are part of the idea, not something else. But when you tell the child, you can't say the abstract part because they wouldn't get it. So you just say the practical part. And then later on, they learn there's this deep abstract part. They feel that it's a totally new subject. But to whom does it seem like a totally new subject? Child. To the child, not to you, because like to you it was one thing all along. So go back to the analogies. The analogies in Hasidus are not that like, the, 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 they're sitting around thinking like, what kind of thing could I use to explain this to somebody else? When I come up with an analogy, that's actually what's happening. So if I make up an analogy, what's happening is like I understood the idea and then I try to find something that I think you'll be familiar with that seems to me to be similar enough that I can use as an analogy. But when the, the actual analogies of, 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 of the people who bring these teachings into the world, that's not how they created those analogies. The way they created those analogies is that they had a sense of this truth and they saw those phenomena as concrete embodiments of that truth. So if they see them as concrete embodiments of the truth, how are they talking about a different subject matter? They're talking about the original subject matter just on your level. The same way you, when you talk about something concrete to a child, you're not talking about a different thing than the conceptual, it's just you're talking about the way it is that they can understand. It also means it's not fake. Like it's not fake at all. God's speech is speech and his words are words. Yeah. But now what that means is though, that by presenting, by, 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 by presenting the practical side of something or the embodied side of something, the concrete side of something only, it, prev- it can prevent you from being aware that there is even a more conceptual, deeper side. But is it really being blocked? Because it's the same thing. Right? So sometimes, and let's go back to this now, sometimes a person can listen to a whole class on Chassidus and completely miss the point that the real subject matter here is God and the soul. It takes a certain level of um, wisdom to realize that this is simply hiding something deeper. And then it takes another level of wisdom to figure out what that deeper thing is. And since not everyone has that wisdom, some people just end up learning the things and think that really all it is is about, you know, relationships and teaching how to, like, you know, thrive as a human being in life and blah, 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 blah. Okay. So now, what is, when, when, when God blocks and hides the truth that there is nothing other than him. What is the thing that he uses? What is the stuff that the curtain that hides the divine light is made out of? Him. him. Well, if he's the one blocking himself, is he being blocked? 
Yes and no. Yes and no. But who ends up being affected by that being blocked? That would be us. Well, us and the other creations, right? But who's not affected by that block? Him and the... What's the other? There are three perspectives here. God, word, the word, the word, right? Because we remember we said that the words are unified with him, right? So to God and to the words, the thing, the thing blocking the truth is nothing other than God. So they don't really, it doesn't affect their sense of anything. But to the creation, it seems to be. It doesn't seem to be blocked. It really is being blocked. But the blockage is only of relevance. To who? Just to us. Tasha. What? Oh, one second, one second. You have anticipated the entire point. If we could somehow remove that blockage, then what would happen? We would see everything as unifying with God. Right. Now, it's going to be a little more technical, complicated. And the reason that's obviously true is because when you do mitzvahs, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, you and God share the same perspective, right? So it's not exactly like that, but you are right that somehow doing mitzvahs is removing blockage. the blockage. It's and now it's bringing, it's revealing God's unity, right? No, it's God is alone because the thing that blocks the truth of his aloneness is him. Okay, so now let's read it inside. Then why are because as long as that thing that's blocking that truth is there, then who does not get to participate in an awareness of his aloneness? Well, that's just a Whoever's subject to that, in our case, the created entities. And maybe God would like the created entities to also be able to participate in his oneness. Realizing that that is a shining, then... No, 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 no. This is a very good point. First off, we're going to see later on, it's actually talking about our experience, um, which should be obvious because when we do mitzvahs, our experience doesn't change. And it's about, this is about doing mitzvahs. Okay. The second thing is like this. You cannot actually remove this curtain on your own. And there's a very simple logical argument to this effect. You cannot undermine the premises that you are working from. Think about this physically. If I'm building a building, the strength of any floor of the building depends on what's underneath it, all the way to the ground, right? So whatever conceptual psychological ground I'm working from, whatever conclusions I reach, they will never undermine my fundamental psychological ground. It just can't happen. So here's the thing. What's our fundamental psychological ground? That there's something other than God or there isn't something other than God? Really? No, there your fundamental psychological ground. You, like, you, yeah, you, psychological. Your psychological sense as a human being is no, what? I'm okay. So, so no amount of contemplation or meditation of your own doing, no matter how much you are rationally convinced, you believe it, you want it to be true, etc., etc., you can never actually enter that space of your own initiative because it will always be a conclusion that you have reached, thus reinforcing your, your own being. Yes. That we're told to do that, though. I didn't... One second. On the other hand... One second. You you brought this up. On the other hand, can you suspend something? Like, 
if the supports are not are not strong enough, right? If you're if you're, if you're building something up, right, the, the higher part is no stronger than what's underneath it, right? But if it's being held up from above, does it matter what's below? So what if instead of you reaching that conclusion, God shows you that that truth? Then what would happen? That'd be different. Then you could have it. Wow. Okay. This. How does it God show us that? Like, how is that? That's a whole discussion. But this is the, but, 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 but one thing that shows up in Chassidus a lot is what about God can you, what, what kind of sense of God and experience of God can you generate of your own? And what does God need to grant you? And how those two things play into each other. The idea of meditating on God is not really productive at all. It's extremely productive. But you just so would you like me to, I, I, you, <laughs> this is, no, this is good stuff. I mean, this is, this is the, what, Chassidus spends a lot of time on this topic, but I'll tell you just very simply, the answer is like this, okay? Um, you can't have children unless you have a husband and a wife, yeah? Um, just having a man is not going to produce children, just having a woman is not going to produce children, right? Okay. Your awareness of God that you create yourself and the subsequent changes it makes towards your feelings towards God, the love, the fear, the surrender, the awe, the devotion, etc. All of that stuff is like a woman. The awareness of God that God and only God can show you and how that changes you and moves you is like a man. What happens when a man and woman get together? They have a baby. So what happens when you, through your own contemplation, create an awareness of God that is yours, right? That, that's grounded on your sense of your own being, right? And never will escape that. Even as much as you know and understand this stuff and believe it, but it's still not the same as really experiencing the truth of those things. And you feel, develop senses of love and passion and all those things, right? And that somehow becomes like, I mean, this is literally the, the analogy that's used in Kabbalah, the womb in which God reveals the truth, then something new is generated. And we're guaranteed that will happen if you create that as... Ultimately, yes. On an individual case-by-case basis, no. No, it's ultimately yes in the Messianic era. Individually, no. And if you want to know more about this topic, learn chapter 14 of Sinai. He discusses it there. Mm -hmm. This is the difference between being a tzaddik... Isn't that what Tzadik is? That's what I was going to say. Why are we regular people encouraged to do it? Well, learn chapter 14 and you'll see. He discusses that. In chap- the end of chapter 14, he discusses that. I think I'm going to be able to see that. From I think you will. It's, it's like a pretty explicit. Okay. Okay. But, okay. So, okay. So getting back to the idea here, the idea is that what? Is that the concealment, the thing that's blocking the truth is not something other than him. So on the one hand, it is really something that's blocking. Right? You can't see me. But on the other hand, nothing is blocking him because it's him that's doing the blocking, right? That idea, like I said, is deep, it's profound, it's multifaceted, there's layers. I actually, when I explained it to you, I mixed several explanations together that are found in Chassidus. The Chassidus actually argues are different explanations and, and analyzes the differences between them. I, I put it all together because I want to get the kind of core idea across that when something is used to obscure itself, it is obscured and it is not obscured. And it's being obscured affects others, but will never affect itself. 
And so if the divine words, right, and God, their kind of shared truth that there's nothing other than God is being obscured by God from the created entities, the divine words will seem to have been specific and exited God and entered the created entity and given the created entity its own sense of being an entity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all at the same time where objectively there's nothing other than God and to the divine word, that is still the case. Yeah, let's see it inside. For all of the constrictions and garments are not things distinct from him, heaven forfend, but like the snail whose garment is part of his body, as is written, the Lord, he is God. So the, 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 the verse that he's quoting um, is, V'yedaita hayom, you shall know today, v'hashavaysa levech, and place upon your heart, ki Hashem hu alikim. Now Hashem is the is, is way of saying the four-letter name, represents the four-letter name of God. The, what? Is this It's... Um, yeah, it's quoted in Elena. Um, is a, is, so the four-letter name of God, the Tetragrammaton, actually, um, they translate here as Lord, but it, it really is a proper noun. Um, like, like Bob. So the verse literally means Bob is king, except instead of Bob, his name is, we don't call him, right? So you say, call, we call him God. And Elohim means like a God-like being, meaning a powerful being, a ruler. But in Kabbalah, the Tetragrammaton refers to God's truth being revealed and the divine name Elohim, which means God is like a powerful ruler, means how God can conceal. And the idea is the same truth of God which reveals himself is the same truth of God which, as it is explained elsewhere, and therefore in his presence all else is of no account whatsoever. So the only real perspective on anything is God's. Why? Because let's go through it. God has God's perspectives. The words have God's perspectives. And the only reason why the entities don't have God's perspective is because God's perspective is being hidden from them by by God. So there really is no real legitimate place for their perspective. They're having it without it really being legitimate, but it's not an illusion. Okay. So also just chose for it to be that way. Yeah. Now you could ask why, which is a fair question, which is answered in chapter... Because there's no how. Well, okay. So... so, I don't know, one of you asked that before and I said no was going to answer it yet. Now I'm going to answer very briefly. There is no answer to how God does anything. Not because it's a religious question when I'll answer it, because conceptually it doesn't make sense to ask the question how. When you ask the question how, what you're saying is like this. I have some end state, I have some initial state, and I'm trying to see how they fit together. There's no end before. Okay. That means there is something commensurate. There's something comparable about the initial state and the end state. Now, is God like anything? So is there any concept of how God does anything? It's like, it's like literally a meaningless question. But there, what is a legitimate question is what he is doing. Is he revealing or is he concealing? Is he communicating or is he hiding? Is he rewarding or is he punishing? Those are fair questions. Is he removed or is he Right. And so what this is not, this, so what all this is saying is, right, the same truth of God which permeates reality is the same truth of God that obscures that truth being revealed. 
how God does anything. We don't know how God does anything. And it's not because we're ignorant, not because we're dumb. God doesn't know how he does things either because there's no how to know. Right? That's, that's the depth of understanding. Like, like if, 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 if you think God knows how he does things, then it's not God that we're talking about. So the important question is why? By the way, just one second. When you talk about spheros in Kabbalah, you can ask how. Because spheros aren't God. Spheros are things that God generated that he uses to... Really? I was going to ask how we have spheros because when you say we... I didn't say how you can have spheros, but once you have spheros... Right. How do they work? Because Kirchhoff, we, we said God... Okay. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly, exactly. exactly. So, so to put this in the technical terminology, if you're talking about Atmos, there is no such thing as how. Once you are talking about different Bechines and Alukus, or Kalim, Tzimtzum, Shemus, all that kind of stuff, there is a legitimate question of how. Right, now really... We're just focusing on our thing about there's God, there's the word, and there's the creation. But I did mention before that in between God and the word, there's a bunch of other implied stuff. The spheres, you could, that's alluded to when he talks about that class we had about the soul being the, the different faculties.